Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. We're up here at the Edinburgh Festival every day till the 24th, so not very long now, doing an hour of tragedy with a different lineup at the Banshee Labyrinth. We're at 7.30 daily and we're putting out podcasts. We put a few podcasts out so you can listen back to some of our Edinburgh experiences back on the feed. This podcast is a recording from the 19th of August, which was another great show, so we're putting it out in its entirety. The difference between this show and most of our shows is the audio for this show was not recorded by Stephen Harvey, our sound engineer, because this was the night that he took off. So all of the sound was recorded from the mics, and so it's much more dependent without room mics on how close the performers were to the mics. So the sound will have some sort of hums and stuff in the background where we had to turn things up, but I think everyone's clear and audible and enjoyable to listen to. So slightly more ropey sound than normal, but really high standard, high caliber of performers. This was a a really great night and I was very excited to have all of the acts on and join us now for some stand-up tragedy. Hello, everybody. And welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. What you hear at Stand Up Tragedy is we gather together different acts from different genres of the creative arts. So we get comedians, storytellers, spoken word artists. Tonight we've got a, a, a blogger and tweeter. Uh, we've got all we get. We just find anybody that does really good stuff and we ask them to come up on stage and do some tragedy. Now that, that means whatever tragedy means to that that performer. So if you don't think it's tragic, take it up with the each and each individual performer. That's not my that's not my my interpretation of tragic. We like all kinds of tragedy here. And basically, what's going to happen is we're making a tragic mixture tonight. And I don't know what the what the actual. Uh, final bit of food that we're going to have is. I don't know what everyone's going to do tonight. So I'm in the same position as all of you, excited to find out what we have here tonight. Now, we're a live show. We're also a podcast. So you can find us anywhere that podcasts go to hang out online, like iTunes, Stitcher, or uh, SoundCloud, that kind of place. Uh, So have a listen. We've already released quite a few of our shows that we've recorded in this room, but we've got a back catalog, back catalogue going back uh, all the way uh, for the last three years. So there's plenty of tragedy out there to listen to. Um, One thing I would like to say at this stage, I always like to say at this stage, is tragedy deals with dark things. uh, So there may be dark themes and dark things said uh, and sad things. And that's what we should expect. There may may very well be some laughs as well, but there will be maybe some sad things. So be prepared for that. If you're walking down the street, bad thing could happen to you anytime. Probably will, right? But, uh, you know, uh, on this stage, it's definitely going to happen or have happened to someone or they will be talking about some bad things. So expect that. Uh, and now we've got the, the, the what I like to call the sadmin section of this show. Where I'm just going to go through a couple of things that we've got uh, on offer for you today. So this is the scent of tragedy. So we run this show up in London or down in London. I'm always doing that. Uh, we run this show down in London and... Uh, We've been uh, we've got a, a very talented guy called Joe Barrett, who you can find out more about at muteandinvisible.com, to design for us the scent of tragedy. And at our last London gig before we came up, we uh, we got the audience to vote, and this is the 
one they voted for. This is the official scent of tragedy. There were two other scents uh, that didn't win. They were much worse smells, so we're very glad that this one won. Uh, they were the smell of the tragic drunk and the, uh, the smell of, the, of tragic war. Uh, so they were very intense. This is less intense, uh, but still a little bit intense. Uh, we're going to spray it uh, around the room now so you can have a little smell of tragedy. So that's the smell, the scent of tragedy. And uh, the scent of tragedy is supposed to smell like kind of freshly cleaned bed linen, right? Is that what you're getting? Because uh, that people sort of think, oh, that doesn't sound very tragic. But I think the idea behind it is that when you smell freshly cleaned sheets, that might be, you know, when your partner has left you. Or it may even be when your partner's died. Uh, so those are the kind of times that you may smell that s- smell. And that's what stand-up tragedy is kind of about, the, the smell of sweetness uh, in the darkest of times. So, yeah, that's kind of what we like to do here on stage. Um, so that uh, tragedy, if you put £10 into the hat at the end of the show, you can purchase the scent of tragedy. You can uh, make yourself smell like tragedy. You can spray all your friends and make them as tragic as, the, as, you, as you would like them to be. So... Uh, so you can get that. If you put a couple of pounds into the hat, uh, you can get one of these. These are tragic snaps. Uh, they were made by the author Jay Adamthwaite. You can find out more about her at jadamthwaite.com. And these are little party poppers. When you pop them, out pops a little, very short, tragic story. So you can get those if you put some stuff in the hat at the end. The last bit of Sabmin to cover before we get to some interesting stuff and not me just talking about, you know, the ways of all of this stuff that's not interesting, uh, is that we have launched uh, a blog, uh, relaunched our blog, really, because we, uh, before we came up to Edinburgh, because at Stand Up Tragedy, we're about, like, all kinds of tragedy. So we're interested in the sense of it, we're interested in the performance of it, and we're also interested in it written down. So we're uh, publishing fiction and non-fiction by really great writers that we like uh, over on our blog. And you can find out more about that and all other things stand-up tragedy related at www.standuptragedy.co.uk and that's the end of the sadmin now we're going to get to some acts oh yes i hope you're excited i'm certainly excited to introduce uh this first performer now i mean three and a half years ago I heard uh, a bit by this gentleman uh, which, uh, which gave me the inspiration to do this show. Uh, so it's a, my great pleasure that three years later I am bringing him onto the stage. He is a kind of hero of mine in many ways uh, and uh, it's my pleasure to be able to share you with him today. Uh, one of our smallest audiences of the Fringe, right? Tragic Tuesdays, I guess. So they're going to be disappointed, all of those people that weren't here. They're not going to have experienced the marvellousness that is Eddie! Peppertone! Thank you. My wife... Hello? Yes. My wife uh, just took her life. Thank you. I've run out of food, so after this show, I'm going to be looking for food on the road. Thank you. These are the tragedies, folks. Get with them. (laughs) Now, I'm going to come out of this bit for one second, because I don't, even though this show is called, what's it called? That's exactly... (laughs) What I thought, 
what I'm doing is stand-up tragedy because I think in America where I'm from, it's gotten so tragic lately with high unemployment. And you saw me laugh a little there, and it's because I have a great sense of humor. <laughs> but there's a great high unemployment rate, and um, the manufacturing base is gone in the United States. And I think the comedy clubs are going to be replaced by tragedy clubs. Because why bother with comedy when life is so tragic? And I think the names of the clubs are going to be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and people will be like, are you going to, oh, fuck tonight? And um, like that. Um, boy, it's always good to hear a walkie-talkie um, <laughs> ringing through the halls. Now remember the theme of the show. It's tragic. Okay? Um, one thing one thing that I think is going to be tragic is the apocalypse. That's, that's probably going to happen. And I think the apocalypse will either be a nuclear strike or it'll be environmental because the environmental... The environment is on the verge of collapse. And I think that after the apocalypse, we are still going to have motivational speakers. <laughs> and I feel like, let's say the apocalypse has happened, and let's say this is the amount of people left on the planet, and I'm the motivational speaker. Okay. So we've had a nuclear strike. Temperatures outside are unbearable. It's too hot to go out. We have no running water. We have no food. We have no means of communication. There are rabid dogs running around with three heads. A lot of people are using this apocalypse as an excuse to cower in fear and kill and slaughter each other. I say, why not lose that last 10 pounds? <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, this is the type of tragedy that is something that makes us want to isolate, that makes us want to just, you know, be in one spot with a gun protecting our little bit of stuff we have, hoping that something will come and save us. I say this is a time to realize your goals. Now, I have a three-point plan that can get you through the apocalypse. Number one, learn how to play a musical instrument. Okay? Now, I think a twig can be fashioned into a flute. Number two, with that skill, find a mate. Now, I know there aren't many women left on the planet, but I believe if you play the flute, they will come. <laughs> and number three, when you find a mate, 
Start a new civilization. Let's get the civilization started over again. You know, funny story. Funny story. I was uh, walking in the forbidden zone. And I saw a man eating a small child. It gets better. It gets better. And I said to him, is that your boy? He said, it was. I said, do you feel like giving up? He said, I do. I said, what if I had a three-point plan that could get you through this apocalypse? He said he was willing to try, and today he is doing very well, staring at the sun and masturbating. Uh, Now I'm going to read. That's my apocalyptic motivational speaker. And now I think the most tragic thing of all, at least, what I have seen in the world is poetry, so I'm going to read you a couple of poems. I wrote these when I was young. This one is called The Beach is Big. The beach is big. Where's my mommy? Where's my blanket? Where's my blanket? Where's my blanket? Oh, there it is. (laughs) Thank you. This one I think you'll enjoy. I started writing poetry when uh, I used to work construction and I used to take other guys' orders and I would write, you know, ham and cheese on rye and then my writing took off from there. This one is called, I wrote this when I was very, very, very young. I was a prescient poet. This one, it's just called, I think you'll love it. I I don't even want to give it a title. Give me a nipple, Mom. Give me a nipple. Come on, come on. I'm an infant. Thank you. (laughs) This one is called Bowling. I swear to God, if this guy starts to bowl before I start to bowl, I'm going to kill him. (laughs) Thank you. You ever ever get that where the guy on your right or left, and you're like, You're trying to time it. I I feel like I have to explain it. This one is called The Moon. My grandmother sits in her chair, rocking slowly back and forth to the rhythm of the ocean that is outside of the room. The ocean goes in the motion of her chair, She bakes bread, and the smell still wafts through the house, as does her love, as does the ocean, as does the chair that rhythmically rocks with the moon, the sun, and the ocean. You know what? I was drunk that night. That one... (laughs) That one was terrible. (laughs) This one is called I Shit Out Eyeballs. I think you're going to love this one. I shit out eyeballs. First a blue eye, then a brown eye. Maybe, just maybe, I should not have eaten that doll. (laughs) 
Thank you, everybody. Eddie Pepperstone, everybody. Okay. Right, so our next performer is also a poet. <laughs> uh, you can find him on Facebook at Keith J Poetry. Put your hands together for Keith Jarrett! used to <laughs> awkward and, and wishing I'd never come and um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I'll 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 just I'll start off <laughs> um with with, with with something tragic and and, and that's that I'm, I'm I'm not getting much action really um <laughs> this is why I I do not believe in casual sex cuz these days you've got to undress to impress and put on a caress, whether you're stroking the hairs on her chest or fondling breasts, it's like a game of chess. And you are a pawn for the night. You have to perform and do it right and suck and bite and tease and please. And why call all of that casual when casual suggests ease? There is no such thing as casual sex because these days you've got to come correct and stand erect and not be too direct because a tentative approach is what everyone expects and with all of these formalities forming our realities why why call it casual sex there's no such thing as a casual fling because you have to be washed and gymmed and trimmed and be able to list all of the things that you're into like you're reeling off a menu and the women or men that you want won't want you and the ones that do want to know if you have any other black friends you can call up on queue to join you <laughs> Okay, I, I didn't mean to say that bit. Um, <laughs> all right, maybe that was one particular website. Um, and maybe that's just me, but there were casualties caused by placing sex in the casual category because you have to have a strategy. You have to have the energy. You have to not take it all too seriously if you want to hold on to your sanity. So no, I do not believe in casual sex because these days you've got to flex. You've got to impress. And before you meet the mattress, you have to second guess if you want to pass the test. And with all of these formalities forming our realities, I fail to see the logic in calling wanton carnality by any name that conjures up casual or easy because casual is a myth. It doesn't exist. It's just like Santa Claus, the stork, and the tooth fairy. And even if you clap three times and apologize, it will not resurrect it. So please just forget it. I do not believe in casual sex. However, <laughs> I do believe in a damn good time, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, th this is tragedy, and it would, uh, yeah, the, the, the rest is a bit serious. Um, I was working in, I, yeah, I was working in a school. I work in a school now, but I was working in a school before mentoring, and, um, this was kind of based on uh, people. He wears colours, stuffs bandanas into pockets as a blood-red symbol of brotherhood. His colours are his neighbourhood flag, a way to gain a reputation in this nation of miscegenation and miseducation. He wears colours. They are the road to Kedoff streets, the key to head-nod head approval, and the future... Only wary-eyed adults talk about the future like a warning, like a threat of things to come, because they are grey and he is young, so he wears colours for recognition and for definition because uniform ties are not enough. They choke his neck and steal his cred, but the paisley cloth 
that turns heads and he'll be draped in them same colors when he's dead. So um, I was really lucky enough to um to 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 do um tragic history um a while ago and and I, and I wrote a poem for that um because I was I was actually looking at um the amount of police deaths um well the amount of people who have died in in police custody and so I was looking at that and created a poem based on that and I thought it's relevant given recent times so. This is only the second time I've ever read this out. Um, ten tragic truths about history. One warm July, a rapist slash terrorist suspect suffocated in his padded jacket strolled, no, galloped alongside the Stockwell traffic. He strode into a tube station and hurdled over the shoulder blade barriers onto the waiting train carriage, hotly pursued by the men in blue. We know too well where this story leads to because there are two main uses for history, study and revision. There are three main uses for history, study, revision and repetition. What else would people use it for? For one restless summer in Tottenham, a week before the whole world learns the name Mark Duggan, several bullet holes are shot through a truth we will never get to know because the story keeps changing. And five, because the story keeps changing, caring whether a politician calls a copper a pleb comes quicker than caring when a copper kills a man with a less than squeaky clean demeanor. Six, the accounts read like poetry, imaginative, elusive, meandering, because the story keeps changing. And the officer who claimed to witness the politician calling his colleague a pleb wasn't even present at the time. Seven. In the present time, the camera always lies. Our lives rely on false evidence and false prophets and forced forgetfulness. Stephen Bogle, Kingsley Burrell, Dow Burns, Donald Chambers, Smiley Culture, Dimitri Fraser, Philip Hume, Cynthia Jarrett, Sean Rigg, Azel Rodney, Habib Ullah, and a list of the lost that could go on for way more than my 10 minutes. P.S. Given recent events in Ferguson, the U.S. list is like 50 states of messed up, way worse. At least we cry this isn't us. But eight, history is full of omissions. Blessed are they who commit it to memory. Blessed are they who admit their wrongdoings and misgivings and ignorance. Nine, history is revised. In schools, a new slimline textbook portrays the glories of empire. World War I gets a glossy makeover and Blackadder is categorically banned by Gove. Gove was still in power at the time. Months before, he's conveniently pushed aside like a stable door after the horse has bolted and already trampled over the wretched of the earth. On the last day of my GCSE exams, I burn my textbook and unlearn what I can as the smoke is passed around in a two-puff pass. There are only four real uses for history. Study, revision, repetition, and forgetting because the story keeps changing. It is riddled with bullet holes and the past is passed around mouth to mouth in tiny gulps and burns out. Back to one warm July. An out-of-court settlement silences a grieving family. The unfounded rape allegation vanishes from headlines quicker than the fabrication of his padded jacket and fare evasion. The story keeps changing. In Tottenham, a gun is discarded from a moving car just before it allegedly shoots. His family are discredited. His family are investigated. History never finishes. New shoots spring up. 
New truths bend around old tongues and legends are split into rivers of allegiances, forked, knived into skin, into lives torn by rifts, collateral damage, refugee statuses and cut like benefits. I could tell you that double think becomes spin doctor, becomes PR, becomes self-asphyxiation, becomes death by misfortune, becomes cause unknown, becomes freedom fighter, becomes terrorist, becomes ally. Ally? Read up on the history of the Taliban or ISIS. And on my shelf, stagnating in an oversized bedsit, a book sits spinelessly waiting to be reread. But I know how it ends with these four words. He loved Big Brother. Then the pages go blank. Cheers. All right. All right. Cheers. I will leave you with this really quickly. You've been writing poetry again. I can spot that leaky pen on your lip for miles away and your tongue with the stale taste of metaphor still on which you tried to brush away. The verses linger still in your kiss. You've been writing poetry again. Don't worry, I can tell it's that fingertip smell, the keyboard stain, the pinky poised above delete pushing out your veins. Why this fucking vein obsession? Lines laid with double meanings and painstakingly revised which you pat into shape and you standardize. If words are your food, why do you play with them? Why do you use them as tools to confuse and condense? You've been writing that intense poetry again. There's a rhyme in your mind and a line in your eyes that I can trace. I can see it in your face because there's a rhythm that you're tapping in. It's just not mine. You've been writing poetry again. Yeah, I know you by now. I can hear it in your diction, your dirty addiction to watching couplets form, your smile as a simile emerges, your urges to splurge your emotions onto innocent sheets. You've been at it again, I lie. It's that telltale tick of the head as puns pull up seats on the screen, the debris of undeveloped phrases onto pages as you spit, feeling into words and shuffle meaning into verse. You've been injecting rhythm into those lines. You're just a meter away from lunacy and it's pathetic the way you keep dressing things up in imagery and symbolism because let's face it you're only inventing new rhymes and new ways to say the same old things like you're in love or like you're scared like you're angry like you're confused because you don't understand life's rules so you use poetry as a ruse to redraft it into metrical form and it isn't normal Uh -uh. it isn't normal at all quick p.s You've been writing on walls instead of fighting in wars. Your bick gripping hands should be handling concrete grit. You should grit your teeth and grin and bear shit. You should be more functional. You should be more like your brother. You should be less of a dreamer. You should be cleaner, more productive. So shut down your PC junk. Pack up your dictionaries. Close your books. Unsquint your eyes and look. Look out at the world. Go on. Face the cold daylight of the outside without the cloak of illusion, without the joke of your delusion or imagery, without the hope of a simile or without a metaphor, without the seasoning of rhyme to waste your time. You should be ashamed of doing the strange things to language that you do while the earth still turns, while cities riot and burn. You should learn that life isn't a blank page for you to scrawl your doo-doo ideas on because there are too many wrongs to write. So, good night. Keith Jarrett, everybody. Okay. Right. So our next uh, person who's doing some tragedy, you can find her on Twitter at ProResting. She is uh, a kind of anonymous person, but tonight she is Miss L. Uh, and she does a, 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 a blog called Casting Call Row. So look out for that. Put your hands together, everybody, for Miss L.
fine. Hello. Um, yes, um, just to sort of explain the name. Um, yeah, I'm not doing cabaret, so don't worry. And my parents didn't want me to be a spy. Um, it's, yeah, I tweet and blog anonymously about how shit it is being an actor, basically. Um, and I can come and do these things because I'm not Jennifer Lawrence, so you won't know who the fuck I am. Um, <laughs> she's the only one getting work at the moment. Um, have we got any actors in this evening? Nope, all the fuckers are working. Of course they are. Yep, just to spite me, they're all off doing their jobs and I'm here. Over 900 theatre shows here this year and I'm not in one of them. Um, I actually did a show up here um, in 2011. Um, it was a kids show and possibly the worst thing I've ever been involved in in my life. Um, we didn't have flyers. Our tech usually didn't turn up. Um, we were in a venue so far out, we were pretty much in Aberdeen. And our average audience was about four. That was probably about as best as we did. Um, and the whole run was summed up by a show about halfway through the run. And we were performing actually to a family of four. That was our audience. Um, and about 15 minutes into the performance, um, the little girl just turned to her mum and went, um, Mummy, when's the play going to start? Um, which pretty much sums up my acting career, really. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm resting at the moment, or as I prefer to call it, carbon offsetting uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, and, but what I wanted to talk to you about this evening is probably the most tragic part of being an actor, and that is casting calls. Um, they are, if you don't know what they are, they are where actors find their work. Um, so it's sort of the beginning of an actor's job, and some of them are so awful, you wish that's where it would end as well. Um, the first casting call I ever went up for read as follows. Strong, athletic, capable of withstanding adverse weather conditions. There is a sex scene and some nudity. Now, this was my first casting call. I should have been excited. I should have been a bit nervous. I shouldn't have been imagining myself having sex in a blizzard. But it didn't end there. There was a bit of description, and it ended with the line... The characters smear themselves with the excrement left behind by an elk. <laughs> now you'd think I probably would have been put off by this point, but no, I went along for the casting. The first casting uh, saw me running up and down a church hall in just a bikini for a solid 15 minutes so they could watch how my body moved. Um, <laughs> at the recall, yep, they asked me back. <laughs> It was eight years ago, I had a much better joke then. Um, and I found myself with 14 other actors and we had to take part in a two and a half hour movement workshop where we had to pretend to be Neanderthals for the whole time. Um, there were many low points, I won't bore you with them now, but the lowest of the lowest points was about two thirds of the way in. Um, the bank of producers and directors, and I think just people who came in off the street to watch actors humiliate themselves, um, all reached under their chairs, pulled out Sainsbury's bags, removed stale loaves of bread from those bags, threw them at us, and ordered us to fight over them while they filmed us. <laughs> um, <laughs> If <laughs> um, I mean, if anyone else has seen a better metaphor for the acting industry than a load of actors scrabbling over the floor for food, then I'm yet to see it. <laughs> um, so my, my 
relationship with casting calls has always been a little bit weird from the offset. Um, now, um, they tend to fall into several categories. I should say that the casting calls I'm going to tell you about, they're all completely genuine. Uh, they're all from very real casting websites, most of which actors have to pay to use as well. So it's just worth bearing that in mind. Um, now, some of them can be brilliant, such as payment, bottle of gin, travel card, £20. Most supermodels don't get out of bed for less than 10 grand. That's my equivalent. <laughs> However, the majority tend to be either ridiculous. So um, please note, the frog does not need contemporary dance skills. Many are sexist. She does what women do best, looking after her boys. All <laughs> the downright horrific. Now bear with me on this one. The actress would need an easy access skirt with leggings underneath so the skirt could be lifted up and it would look convincingly like she was being taken from behind. Must consent to have fake vomit thrown on her. <laughs> oh, yeah. But <laughs> You're getting a good line of films there. Um, what's incredible about casting calls is, as I said, it's the beginning of the work for us. So we don't know who these people are putting these jobs out. So it's really lovely when they use the you know use it as a chance to really put our minds at ease. You know, then they're not going to kill us or they're not going to exploit us. So you know, um, so this will let you know what might be asked of you. So must be willing to have a condom filled with condensed milk thrown at her face. <laughs> and then there's the props that you might be working with. The egg shoots directly from her vagina into the doctor's mouth. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and then there's the type of roles that you could be going up for. I'm looking for someone to impersonate my mother when me and my mum can't meet up. Ah! It's sweet, but it's fucking creepy as well. <laughs> but the thing to remember with casting calls is these are job adverts, so... It's exactly the same as people who have got proper careers and proper prospects. And with normal job adverts, uh, they'll put in things to entice people to apply. So, you know, things like you'll get 30 days paid holiday or use of an on-site gym, L lovely things like that. And casting calls are exactly the same. They're really good at making sure actors put themselves forward. So, I mean, there's things on offer like, I can't afford to pay anyone. I will, however, buy you a Subway sandwich. <laughs> Thanks. Let's just be thankful that's the only six-inch thing he's offering. <laughs> no pay, but I will write a blog post about you. Oh, oh, my landlord will be thrilled with me. And my personal favourite. No pay, unfortunately, but you will get to ride in a white stretch limo with a midget and the band. <laughs> Woo! Who needs pension schemes? So you're probably thinking, well, why do you put yourself through it? If it's that awful... What are you doing it for? Get another job. It's the glamour. It's the glamour of this job. That's why we forfeit financial security and why we put ourselves up for awkward questions from our parents at Christmas about our dwindling, non-existent careers. You know, I mean, roles like... You'll be playing the role of a rubber duck. It's a role every actor wants on their CV. Or character. Nude ghost. <laughs> which... Incidentally, it's not just a role, but also what you should imagine if you're scared of ghosts. And she gets a couple of lines, a light-hearted orgy scene, and then gets kicked through a window. <laughs> Yay! Hi, Mum! 
maybe it's me that's the problem. Maybe if I wasn't looking at all these awful casting calls, maybe if I was happy to just work for a bottle of gin and a travel card, then maybe I'd be a lot happier. Maybe if I just didn't look at the negativity, then I'd be, it would be fine. But that's the great thing about casting calls, is that they tell us where we might be going wrong as well. So I'm going to leave you with one final casting call. Thank you for being so lovely. Um, as I said, um, you can find me at Pro Resting on Twitter. I tweet about these all the time. I also have a Tumblr uh, where there's thousands of all the awful casting calls that I find. So if you fancy sobbing at a computer screen for three hours, then um, just casting call woe, search for that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not at anything at the fringe, but if you see me, then give me a job or something. It'd be really <laughs> lovely. Um, so I'll leave you with this final casting call. There's something unnerving about her. Perhaps she's just read too many books. <laughs> Thank you. Miss L, everybody. Pro wrestling. Bye. See you soon. Okay, right. So our next uh, performer, she's doing some spots, I believe. You're, are you still doing some spots there? Yeah, doing some spots at Shit of the Fringe. At the at, what was that? Funny, funny. Funny, funny girl at the stand. Put your hands together for Sajila Koshi! I'm not pissed. Um, it probably looks like I'm pissed. I've just got this condition called vertigo, um, which the doctors seem to think it's okay just to send you for a pregnancy test because obviously that would sort it out, wouldn't it? Um, and I, I can't tell you, it's been a while since I've had the sex. And so when they did give the te pregnancy test and it came out negative, I was a little bit disappointed. I just wanted to recount. Uh, but anyway, that, that's not my story. Um, I hope I do this story justice because... Um, uh, it's, I haven't told it for many years and um, it's basically uh, how my family deals with very dark situations because that's why I love the idea of the show like tragedy and comedy um, and which is to sort of go to a comedy place to laugh at stuff uh, and, and, and my family uh, originally uh, were from India before partition and so when the partition happened if you know anything about the Indo-Pakistan partition uh, a lot of people died and lost their lives so you know but you, see, you have to find the dark humour and that's, that's hopefully what this story is about now now, um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Pakistan. Anyone been to Pakistan? No. It's not a... D have you? Did you say yes? Sorry. I, oh, I just saw a hand. I'm really blurry vision. I just saw a hand. I thought it's like, ooh, oh my God, someone's gone there. Why? Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a holiday destination hotspot necessarily per se, but it is, it is a beautiful country. Um, now, uh, I'm going to go back to 1996. Uh, and, you know, a lot of you look like they, you weren't probably born then, so you're very young, aren't you? But anyway... Um, have you heard of a, an organisation called, because you were talking about um, you know, freedom fighters and stuff and what makes a terrorist, right? So th there's an organisation an organization called the MQM. Now, I had to look up what it stood for because I've always known of just the NQ MQM. And it's... Oh, here's my glasses, sorry. <laughs> it's the Matahida Kwame Movement. So that doesn't really explain any more to us about what the MQM are. Now... Um, just to give you a little bit back uh, black story, when I look, went on to Wikipedia, it says it's a, sec it's a secular political party representing the Urdu-speaking uh, people of Pakistan. Uh, now, the person leading this is called Alta Hussain. Now, Alta Hussain um, was arrested for money laundering in 2014. That's the most recent story you have of him. He's also down for uh, uh, accused of 31 murders and 11 murder attempts. So, not a pleasant man. And now, this, right? <laughs> so I went, so the, this, the story starts in early 96, where I went to Pakistan and I've gone to this demonstration. There is a crane and there's a man on the top of the crane. It looks like the Father's for Justice, uh, but it only it's Alta Hussain and he's coming 
covered in garlands of flowers. He's got a carrier bag, uh, a Sainsbury's carrier bag, and he's throwing petals uh, on, onto the people around us. And there are police everywhere, and they're telling the people to sit down on the ground. Sit down on the ground. The holy man is here. The holy man is here. Sit down on the ground. It's like, holy man, Althav Hussain is a taxi driver back in London. I don't know, but last time I looked, right, God didn't actually put a meter on and doesn't ask for tips or unofficially rape you, right? So I didn't, I didn't get this. Um, and so they're going around, and I'm, I'm, there's no way. My aunts are going, look, just do as they're telling you, just do as they're telling you, because they live there. And I said, there is no way I'm sitting on the ground. I have OCD, I have germ phobia, right? There's no way I'm going to do that. So they come around, they said, sit down, sit down, the holy man is here. And I said, he's not a fucking holy man. Now, you have to imagine that I said that in Urdu, by the way. Uh, so in the Urdu version, I'm saying he's not a fucking holy man. And they go to get their baton, and they're about to beat me with the baton, right? So he goes to get the baton, and I grab it, and I say, don't you dare. And in my best English memsar voice, I said, don't you dare touch me. Do you have any idea who I am? <laughs> I know, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. But the thing is, I've always wanted to say that, right? And it's like, wow, okay, they've really bought into I will cause such a big scandal in the world. The press will hear about this. I don't know where this shit is coming from, right? <laughs> anyway, they allow us to go. They announced to go, and nothing more is said of this, but I'm really horrified by what I saw that day. Now, fast forward a few months, and I've gone back to Karachi for a wedding, and I'm staying at my grandmother's house, and the morning after the wedding, I don't know if you've been to Asian weddings, guys. Have you been to Asian weddings? Have you seen how much gold we wear? Yeah? Totally unnecessary. I mean, so much gold. The women look like they've had a makeover done from Pin My Bride, don't they? <laughs> right? Um, now, we've all bought all our gold to wear at these weddings. And I don't know why we didn't think that was a sort of a dangerous situation in Karachi. The morning after, I'm sleeping in the lounge uh, in my grandmother's house because it's the coolest room. I wake up to screams and, like, glass breaking. So I kind of get up and I think, what's going on? And in the doorway, there's a bearded man. And I think, oh, he must be an uncle. Everyone's an uncle in Pakistan, right? Everyone's an uncle, even the inappropriate ones. Um, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> and that's a different story altogether. Um, so no, I, I, he comes in. I'm thinking, oh, that's weird, that's weird. Because uncle goes, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. And I'm thinking, uncle was carrying a gun. Right now, that's weird because that's not a nice way to greet your niece, right? So I, I'm sort of pondering over this, and I can still hear screaming, shouting, and it's you know it's a big house, so I can imagine there's probably stuff going on. He comes back in, and when he comes back in, he says, "Um, get up, get up," and he points the gun at me, and I'm sort of like trying, to, I'm disorientated. I should also add, I'm now a few months pregnant, a couple of months pregnant. Only my husband knows, and my mum. And uh, as he says, get up, he sees my wedding ring and my engagement ring sparkling and he pulls on the ring. And two things happen. As he's pulling on the rings, my chubby fingers, baby weight, um, <laughs> don't, don't allow him to pull the ringers off. But I, he, as he pulls me up, I'm towering above him, right? Now, I'm being held at gunpoint by a hobbit terrorist, right? And, I, and he just look at me because I can tell. It's like, fucking hell, she's a big old eunuch. Do you know what I mean? And even the gun's kind of wobbling a little bit. And he's, I know, and he's thinking, can I take her on, right? And I'm a bit insulted. Um, 
But he puts the gun on my back and he sort of moves me to the other room where everybody else is. There's three other aunts there, all at different stages of pregnancy. There's my aunt's little girl who's asleep, little baby. And there's a couple of uncles and my grandmother and my mum who is screaming the place down. And she looks at me, she goes, oh, thank God you want to hear Sajila. It's like, I haven't been out on a night out, mum. You know, have you noticed the severity of the situation? And there's another gunman who's pointing the gun at her and she's broken him. She's broken him because he's really looking petrified. She goes, listen, Sajila, you know what I'm like. When I get nervous, okay, I get, uh, you know I have to go for a shit, okay, right? No, he won't even let me go to the toilet. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what the fuck are you doing? Do you not know what's going on here? Two men with guns, well, we're going to die. Just shut up. Anyway, she goes over to the gunman, let's call him gunman number two, the good guy, right, because he's a softer one. And she says, listen, listen, uh, my name is Khalda. What is your name, huh? Huh? What is your name? Uh, listen, I just go to the toilet for two minutes, I come back, and then we can start again, okay? It's like, What? No, there are no toilet breaks in a hostage situation, mummy. There are no tea breaks. There is no time out. There is no me time. What the fuck are you doing? Just shut up. Anyway, that is how we ended up actually being locked in the smallest toilet in the house, right? Eight of us. But before we go in there, um, the gunman who's like a little bit weak, I kind of try and reach out to him. And I say, look, because what he does is he basically pushes my grandmother. She's an old lady. He pushes my grandmother. And, um, and I say, look, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And whilst, whilst my grandmother's trying to pick herself up, the little baby wakes up and she starts crying. And she's crying. And he gets really nervous. He picks up the gun, holds, pulls back the trigger. I've seen James Bond. That's what they do, right? He pulls it back. So I know that he's going to probably pull the trigger. I'm petrified. And I'm begging him. Look, listen, listen, listen. You look like such a decent man. He doesn't. He looks really rapey. Right? You look like such a decent man. You must have sisters. You must have mothers. You must have little children. And like, it's getting to him. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe he's not as bad as the gunman that was pointing the gun to me. But the thing is, I'm wondering if I've got Stockholm Syndrome. Do you know when you fall in love with your captor? I'm like, fuck, really? I didn't think it was going to happen this way. And Stockholm Syndrome is the saddest, saddest, unrequited love of all. Because you know what Stockholm Syndrome is, don't you, when you fall in love with your captors? And let's face it, right, if you truly love someone, you set them free. And this man is not going to set me free. He's not going to set me free. Anyway, um, he doesn't pull the trigger. And we're grateful because we really thought that little baby was going to die. And then uh, they've watched too many movies. They've watched too many movies because the evil gunman who had me at the beginning, um, he's pulling all the gold off all the women. And what they actually wanted was my uncle, who's a doctor, and they were hoping to hold him uh, as hostage uh, to gain some money. Unfortunately, my uncle had buggered off to Dubai, right? So we're having to deal with this, and they just don't know what to do with this. And we had heard a straight of these stories where the MQM had gone around, picked on a family, shot one member of the family so that the family was shut up and not tell the police. They hadn't accounted for me, right? Because <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm looking, I'm thinking, I'm going to make a picture in my head, you know, because they will ask you at the police station how to like draw their pictures. I'm thinking, I've got, he's, got, he's quite short, very short, Swartman syndrome. Um, yes, the gun's this way, he looks like that way. Anyway, um, they lock us in the toilet eventually, and we're in the toilet. And my mum, true to her word, does go in the corner. We literally are like sardines packed in like this. We can't move. It's very claustrophobic. And uh, she goes, I really need to go. So we shuffles behind us and it's one of those low toilets in the ground and it's like platoon. <laughs> it's like platoon. Uh, she's making so much noise we're thinking they're going to come back and fucking shoot us, right? Um, probably louder than the guns. So uh, we have this moment of nervous laughter. We just burst out laughing. And it's ridiculous. Like, shh, shh, be quiet. Be quiet. They get really angry. They come back, open the door and say, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you laughing at? 
you, you know, we're, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. It's like they obviously don't think that we realise it's really serious. So we're sorry. We're sorry. We can't stop laughing. We're giggling. We're going to fucking die giggling. And <laughs> so to prove a point, they grab my uncle, who's around my age, and they grab him and take him outside. And I think, oh, my God, that's it. He's going to die. He's going to die. To be honest, I wasn't really that bothered because he's a bit of a shit. But, <laughs> but my grandmother loved him. She would have been devastated. We hear a thud. I think, oh, my God, they've killed him. The door opens and they push him back inside. Now the thing is, we are packed in like sardines. He's faint, he's falling down. My grandmother smacks him. She slaps him really hard. She goes, you stupid idiot! We haven't got a room for you to port on the floor. Just stand still, stand still. <laughs> She's got no sympathy. In that moment, I wonder if they're gonna come back. Now, I asked for a pot of cream. I've got this thing about skincare. I love my skincare, I love my products, I love my bling, right? And I say, could you just pass me that big pot of cream over there, please? They all look at me like, is she fucking mad? Is she mad? And my grandmother like, she said, I was going to kill you when we came out. I was going to kill you myself. I was going to tangle you with my hands. And then they passed the cream, keep quiet. What I had done was just, I'd put my bangles right up to my sleeve. I took them off. I put them in there. And everybody in the room went, oh! <laughs> and they've got rings. Gold teeth are coming out. My aunt's getting a chandelier out of her bra, sticking it in there. <laughs> two days. Two days we were there. We finally got out um, because we were too scared to leave because we didn't know if they'd left or not, and they kept popping back in. They took everything, but we managed to come away with it with our lives. When I went back to London, it was really symbolic of how I felt in my marriage. I felt trapped. Maybe the Stockholm Syndrome, I don't know, but I felt trapped. And two weeks later, I left my husband, three months pregnant. Sometimes your whole course of your life changes in a moment. And that was then in Pakistan. Anyway, that's my story. I've been Sajila. I have got a show called Funny for a Girl at the Stand in the Square. Uh, it seems weird to then plug the show at the end, doesn't it? It seems really, it seems a bit like, oh, there's me tits now. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it seems really sort of dirty. Um, so please to come down. It's, it's Stand in the Square. It's a lovely show, uh, Best of the Fest in the film. And it's so nice to meet pro wrestling in real life because I'm sort of like a fan, online fans. So I was a bit as well. Oh, sycophantic. Ooh, ooh. Um, anyway, I've been Sajila. Thank you. Okay, so now, uh, right, our last performer is racing across town, um, and my, uh, my, is, is he here? Is he not? Well, the last time we brought him up on stage at the last minute, the person arrived and we had to stop him in the middle of a story, so that's a tragedy in itself, uh, but hopefully today he'll be able to get through the story, uh, we'll see, are you cool with this, Tim? Okay, right. He does a show in this uh, very room. It is called uh, Rebranding Beelzebub. It's at 9.50 and it's a great show. I recommend it. Put your hands together for Tim Ralphs. Thank you. Uh, every time, so I, can't, I can really see outlines and every time you wander there, I'm going to think your story beast Who's, uh, who's come to actually do the spot that I'm, I've currently sort of insinuated myself into. So I have a whole show of uh, kind of devil-related stories. Um, this is not really one of those. I grew up in a town called Western Supermare, which is a lovely place to have left. It's not the most <laughs> dilapidated of British seaside towns. It's not the most garish. But it is the only one I've ever been to where the entirety of the tourism industry just exists to distract you from noticing that you're not at the beach. Because <laughs> at Western Supermare, the mud flats just slope 
down to the brackish estuary waters of the Bristol Channel, which rock backwards and forwards, and then the tropical horizon is nothing but the wind-swept shores of South Wales. And so the uh, promenades and the uh, candy floss and the donkey rides and the peak caps with plastic turds on them and the boxer shorts with latex bums bursting out. Yeah, you're nodding. You've seen the seaside in this country. The, uh, all of the spectacle is just there to stop you from realising that there is no beach. <laughs> but if you walk away from all of that, if you stroll down my memory lane past the copper cascades of the penny falls and the arcades, you get to the reason why I, as a small child, was brought to live in Western Supermare. You get to my stepdad's museum. And like most local history, local interest museums, it wasn't exactly riveting. They did have a display cabinet full of rivets. They had three life-size fibreglass replicas of the great pillar boxes of Western Supermare. They had an artist's impression of what a stuffed bear would look like if they actually had one. But, but in the back rooms, the back rooms of the museum that I, as the son of your curator, had access to, that was where all the good stuff was. That was like the final scene of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's just full of incredible boxes of priceless artefacts. There were, um, there were bits of occult paraphernalia that had been looted from the lodges of the Golden Dawn back when Mahathas McGregor warred with Aleister Crowley. There was uh, the remnants of the experimental weapons that were fired during World War I off Western Supermare's piers to see if they could hit South Wales. Uh, and, and there was the mummy. The mummy slumbered in a sarcophagus that was a chest freezer. I'd never seen the mummy, but as a small child, I was fascinated by the thought of it. The, the mummy, to fill you in, was the corpse of someone who two or three hundred years ago had wandered out onto the mudflats, probably looking for the beach, had sunk into the salty, sandy ooze and had been preserved. Now, when a body gets dug up by archaeologists after two or three thousand years, they get really overexcited. But two or three hundred years, nobody cares. <laughs> so whoever had dug up the body had donated it to the museum. And what was worse, they'd frozen it first. And if you freeze a body, you can never really let it defrost. Or else, as happened one wondrous hot summer at the start of the 90s, I was about ten years old, and I think a cleaner must have unplugged the freezer to plug the hoover in and not switch things back over. And the first that we detected of the mummy's resurrection was the smell that crept out amongst the display cabinets. And my stepdad was chosen to dispose of the body. And because he was uh, always looking for new and novel ways to bond with me, his stepson, he brought me along. <laughs> it was the summer holidays. I didn't see the mummy. That would have been traumatic. It was all wrapped up in black bin bags and put into the boot of our vehicle. Um, we were driving a blue Volkswagen camper van, which I used to affectionately refer to as the Big Blue Fun Bus. And I got up in the front next to my stepdad and we drove to a local crematorium. And, and I probably didn't appreciate this at the time, but it's been true all through my life. Crematorium staff are just really up for anything that breaks up the routine of their days. They, they're really game for a laugh. So they were really up for helping out. But they gave us the, the single sheet of paper, the minimum form you had to fill in to arrange a cremation. And we filled it out. And the last line just read, death certificates. And we couldn't tick that box because we didn't have a death certificate. We'd been, never been in any doubt that the mummy was dead. 
but they couldn't burn unless the bureaucratic process was fulfilled. So, so then we had to drive from, we went from GP surgery to GP surgery, trying to find anyone who was qualified to complete a death certificate. And doctors, unlike crematorium staff, do not like the routine of their days interrupted <laughs> by zany museum stories. So they kept moving us along. And the sun beat down on the big blue fun bus, turned it into an oven. And in the boot, the mummy was suppurating and the yellow liquid was pooling and pouring out of the black bin bags. And inside the van, the air was turning from rancid to unbearable. We would have to park up every 20 or so metres to go staggering out and get a fresh lung full of air. Eventually, we did, uh, we did find someone who filled in the certificate. They wafted a stethoscope in the vague direction of the bin bags. Uh, and then we went back to the crematorium. The funeral pyres were fired up and we scattered the mummy's ashes to the winds. Museums closed down now. There's your tragedy. There were successive years of cancel cuts and culture's a very easy offering on the altar of austerity. And maybe that's right. Maybe the taxpayer shouldn't be paying for rivets and fiberglass pillar boxes and And if I really wanted to leave you in that tragic space, I'd stop the story there. But I, I kind of don't, because you seem so lovely. Instead, I want to leave you with this image. There's a scrapyard on a hill that overlooks Western Supermare. And somewhere in there, there is the relic, the, the shell of a blue Volkswagen camper van, the big blue fun bus. And in the height of summer, when the sun beats down on it, out of the upholstery, there comes this really curious smell and passers-by they wonder what it could possibly be that taints the air and only you and I know the truth thank you the, the show is here at 10 to 10 it's loads more of that um, do come along it'd be great to see you yeah. Tim Ralphs everybody stepping in there Maybe Tragic Heroes is the way to go, I think, of this show today. For certain, has been a hero there. Right, so, at this point in the show, normally when we have our sound engineer here, uh, some dramatic music would start to play. So you have to kind of imagine that. We're going to put that in post-production this time. But, uh, but you, 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 so th th this is the only moment where, you know, the people listening at home are getting more than what you guys have got, because I feel like you guys have got a lot today. And please tell everybody about what we're doing in this room. Think about how great these acts were. Um, We've had really good audiences, so, um, but uh, at the same time, uh, we don't want an another day where we've got a few sp seats spare. So please tell people about what we're doing. Uh, you can find us at Stand Up For Tragedy on Twitter. You can like us or friend us, make friends with some tragedy on Facebook. Uh, we're gonna, on, uh, when we go back to London, if anyone is in those necks of the wood, uh, we're going to have another show on the 25th of September, which is going to be a kind of reunion of uh, a lot of the acts we've had here called Tragic Friends that night's going to be, and that's going to be at the Dog Star in uh, Brixton. It's easy to remember our next shows in this year, actually. They're both on the 25th. It's the 25th of September, and then the 25th of October will be our last show of the year, Tragic Horror. Ooh. So, uh, yes, when, don't forget as well, when you go out and put your money into the hat, if you want to, uh, you can, uh, if you put £10 in, you get the centre tragedy, a couple of quid, you get a tragic snap. And uh, basically, this is a free... 
free show. It's free for you to come in. Uh, it's not free for us to put on. Uh, it's you know it's costly as is all, all things in life. Uh, you know, and in fact, I lost my job in the public sector doing important things with uh, with the under fives. I lost that job this year, and if I'd lost that job, I wouldn't have been standing. If I hadn't, if I'd known I was going to lose that job, I wouldn't be standing on this stage. But I did lose that job, and I'm still standing on this stage because that's the way my life's gone. Very very tragic this year. Very very skin of the you know skin of my teeth. So uh, if you feel like a helping out a personal tragedy, uh, stick some money in the box on the way out. There are more altruistic kinds of reasons for putting some money in that box. Supporting the arts, what a great thing to do. The government aren't going to do it. I've got to wrap up. The government aren't going to do it, but you can help uh, them to uh, you know, help us to escape from this terrible government by making the big society and then not inviting them to join it. Right, so that's, uh, that's another reason to put some money in the hat. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was—I basically had a tragic childhood, so uh, I'm scared of silence, really. So I just keep talking until sort of someone breaks the sound. So thanks very much. The tragedy is over. Please take your glasses with you. I don't want to have any more tragedy in this room than we need. All right, thank you very much. This podcast was, was recorded by Elizabeth Bailey and me. The music is from George Brockton and Samuel Wilkinson. And I was the one who edited it all together. Thanks for listening.